The word of God says in Exodus chapter 2, verses 15 through 22, When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and water the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. This is the word of the Lord, and how thankful we are for his word. What an encouragement it brings to our hearts, and today I believe some of you need to hear this word. You may find yourself in a place like Moses finds himself in here in Exodus chapter 2, but be of good courage. This is not the end of the story, nor is it an inconsequential part of the story but rather we're going to see the value in it. What do I mean by this? Well, uh, there's a famous businesswoman in the United States whose name is Sarah Blakely. And back when she was a child growing up, her father used to ask a question at the dinner table, and he would, he would say, what have you failed at this week? What have you failed at this week? It might seem like a strange question, but the point uh, of him asking that was if you're not failing, well, you're not trying at anything because you're not ultimately growing. Uh, I, I'm not going to take that too far, but I see the value and the truth in that. We could see many examples of those who we probably label as a failure at some point of the journey. And by the way, I would say that of absolutely any character that you would seek to emulate, whether that be in, in the academic world, whether that be in the athletic world, whether it be in literature, whether it be in politics, whether it be in business, um, certainly you're going to find their story replete with what the world calls failures. There's a couple famous ones I'll just briefly mention. One is Theodore Seuss Geisel. Of course, uh, we would know him not as that name but as Dr. Seuss, one of the most celebrated children's authors um, that's ever lived. Uh, but Dr. Seuss, after getting his undergrad, um, he wanted to pursue a PhD in literature at Lincoln College, Oxford. Long story short, he ends up dropping out and for the purpose of writing children's books. Well, the first children's book he wrote called and to think i saw it on mulberry street it was actually rejected 27 or 28 times by different publishers until finally it was accepted imagine going to publisher after publisher after publisher after publisher after public okay you get the point but i didn't even get to the point right 27 or 28 times and finally, of course, when it was accepted, not only did his books become a giant success in the literary field, but by the time of his death in 1991, he had sold over 600 million copies of his book. I'll just say this much. There's at least 27 publishers out there that feel 
quite foolish for their decisions. Uh, another obviously famous example, many of you would be familiar with this, would be Thomas Edison, a famous inventor of history. He holds, uh, I think it's 1,093 patents to his name. But uh, he was trying to develop this commercially viable electric light bulb and it's said that he failed over 10,000 times. You just do the math on how many 10,000 is, how many days that would take of failing over and over and over. And a reporter once asked him how it felt to fail so many times. And this is what he said. And he said, I have not failed 10,000 times. I have not failed once. I have succeeded in proving that there are those 10,000 ways which will not work. When I have eliminated all the ways that will not work, I will find the way that will work. And I'm thankful for light bulbs that work. Well, humanly speaking, this is where we find Moses in this passage. Uh, we see that, in our opinion, in our words, he messed the whole thing up. Uh, he, he messed up the safety, his home, his family, uh, his character. And where do we find him? Well, we're going to find him sitting at a well, and we'll get there in just a minute. But the title of this podcast is A Failing Fugitive, But Not a Forgotten Failure. I'll say that again. A Failing Fugitive, But Not a Forgotten Failure. What do I mean by that? Well, there's a huge difference between uh, failing versus failure. In other words, um, failing is something which is temporary, but being a failure, we would deem it to be something permanent. To be failing is to be failing is a setback or a disappointment, but uh, to be a failure, that's a, a permanent mindset, we could say. Um, failing shows a stretching of yourself. It, it shows a pushing of, of limits. It shows you're not content with the status quo. Whereas a failure shows one who has given up. Um, failing is part of the journey, but failure, that's the end of the journey. Um, failing is an opportunity to, to learn, to grow, and we're going to see that in Moses' story. Whereas failure is turning back from the learning, from the growing. Um, and so that's why I call this a failing fugitive, not a forgotten failure. So Moses was seemingly forgotten, but even that, he was not, and he was not a failure, nor um, in, as well. <laughs> that was an interesting uh, sentence configuration that, uh, that just came out of my mouth. But maybe the most important initial lesson as we look into this passage is that Moses' flight to Midian um, was that the Lord still loved him. The Lord was pursuing him. The Lord cared for him. The Lord was still setting up divine opportunities for him in the midst of his mistakes and failures. So there are three uh, things that we want to notice and walk through as we navigate this passage. First, let's notice where Moses sat. Then we're going to see where Moses stood. And then finally, we'll notice where Moses stayed. Where Moses sat, that's the well. Where Moses stood, it was for the women. And where Moses stayed was in the wilderness. So let's go back to verse 15. Um, of course, verse 15 is where we left off last time. And in verse 15, um, we, we, we see that Moses in a place of fear. He's in a place of, again, perceived failure. He's in a place of danger as Pharaoh is now seeking his life. It says, when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. So there we find him. Sin. 
Sin leads to wandering. It creates an instability in our life, a restlessness, a fear. It disrupts our home as well. Uh, you can just imagine the pain of, of uh, Moses' parents, of his brother, of his sister, whoever else may have been in his family, his friends, even Pharaoh's household. That I'm sure he had many dear friends there too. But remember that wherever sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And God is, as we've seen before in a previous episode, Undercover Boss, God is working behind the scenes. So he's rejected by his own people, the Hebrews, and we saw that when he came to the two Hebrews that were fighting, he was rejected by Pharaoh's household. But maybe more than all of that, he probably felt rejected by God as well. I don't know that, but consider the confusion. He acted in what he thought was righteousness. He acted in a way that, as it says over in Stephen's uh, sermon in Acts 7, that what God had put in his heart, he had acted on that. And we understand he acted in perhaps we could say a fleshly way, but still he had acted. And now he finds himself here. Has that ever been your example, your story, uh, where you've acted in something you really thought God wanted you to take a step forward? And well, let, let, let me encourage you, the story probably isn't over. I mean, unless you're dead, in that case, you're not listening to this. Uh, the reality is that here Moses could have felt like God rejected him, but really God was going to use these past things as building blocks. So where Moses sat, here he sits at a well. But uh, even as he sits at a well, um, I think there's a really exciting thing that we can uh, point out at this at this uh, at this uh, juncture of the podcast, and that is that there is so much. Uh, there's such a picture that is carried on throughout Scripture as he sits down at a well. And this will become more clear as we walk through the story. But I just want you to know that even that detail is not random at all. When we come to verse 16, though, we see now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Um, and then it says the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them. Um, I, I want us just to see this... Uh, this picture that's happening here, and that is that the, the the women that come to the well are being oppressed, and they're being oppressed by other shepherds who drove them away. That phrase, drive them away, um, this is the same uh, phrase used for, for Pharaoh, driving. Um, it, it's this oppression. And what I want us just to take note of is even though Moses is in a new place, even though Moses is in maybe a different mental place where he's struggling, I want you to see that the same oppression he's going to meet in this place. He's still going to see the same abuse of mankind taking place, and Moses is still going to take action. So keep that in mind. But that's where Moses sat. Notice where Moses stood, and this is so important. It says in verse 17, Moses, but Moses stood up and saved them. But Moses stood up and saved them. This is where Moses stood, and that word stood in verse 17 literally means to spring to one's feet, to spring to one's feet. In other words, it's that quick jump up. It's that taking action. It is what I could almost say a reaction. Of course, last time we talked about the difference between responding and reacting, and if you haven't listened to that, I encourage you. Go back and listen to that podcast, powerful lessons in there, practical for everyday life, but as he springs to his feet, it brings up a question in my mind and for my own life, and that is, what causes me to spring to my feet? 
what do I so quickly defend? Is it self or is it the things of the Lord? Is it temporary things or eternal things? Um, who do we stand to defend? For what do we stand? And that, that is such an important um, topic for us to meditate on. And here we're not going to take too long to meditate on it. But I do want you to think about what causes you to spring into action. And it's, it's again, a good reminder just to think about um, are we springing into action with such a limited perspective in view? In other words, maybe we're springing into action to defend a certain people, but actually at the cost of something else. In other words, we're standing for things, but we forget what we're standing on. I'm going to make this, I hope, clear. See, there's a lot of things in life you're going to stand for. And the things you stand for will at times succeed and will at times fall. But the real question I have to ask you is, what are you standing on? In the Word of God, it's a great study as you look at the things we stand on or the things we stand in. And as we get to the New Testament, we see we stand in the gospel. We stand in faith. We stand in the grace by which we've been saved. We stand in, in Christian liberty. There's a lot of things we stand in. This is where we're planted. And as we stand in these things, then we're going to stand for other things. We're going to stand for the things of the gospel. We're going to stand for the things that the word of God so clearly teaches. And yet, um, I, I, want, I want to warn you. I want to warn you against standing uh, on the platform of things like political parties, whatever country you live in the world. Because here's the thing, if you're standing on something, that's the foundation on which your weight rests. And the reality is, it's not that they might not have many valid things. I stand for many things in life. And sometimes those things might look like one political party or the other. But I'm not going to stand on everything that one political party says. Why? Because I stand on the word of God. I stand for the truth of God's word. And I want to encourage you. This is nothing against saying, hey, don't vote. Don't be part of politics. Hello, the Bible doesn't teach that. Daniel was up there in government. You've other guys like Nehemiah, the, the, the king's cupbearer. You've got many examples of, of men and women that God used in political places, let alone other areas of society. But what I am saying is, what causes you to stand? Well, it should be the things uh, that, that relate to on which you stand. And when we stand on the word of God, on the things of the Lord, well, we're going to stand when we see that his name is to be spoken for, that his reputation, his glory is at stake. And so here we see Moses stand. So we see where he sat. We see where he stood. Along with this, notice when he stands, what he does. It says Moses stood up and saved them. He saved them. I think in some versions it says he helped them. But the word being used there, um, yashe, is uh, used one other time in the book of Exodus. It's used many other times in, in the Old Testament scriptures. But in the other time, it's used in Exodus chapter 14, verse 30. And there it's when it, it says that thus the Lord saved, there's your word, Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. So there we see the Lord doing this saving. Now, here in uh, Exodus 2.17, I, I find it interesting that this Yashe, when in the Septuagint, is translated Ruomai. Ruomai, and Ruo is, means to draw to drag along the ground. It means to draw or snatch to oneself, and invariably, it refers to snatching something from danger, from evil, or from an enemy. Okay, so, so stay with me. It says that Moses stood 
and saved them. Yashe or Ruomai. Now, the reason I, I pull this out is because there's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ here as well. See, Moses at a well, a picture again of the Lord Jesus that we're going to see very clearly here in a minute. But uh, the, there are these souls that come, they're being oppressed, and he saves them. Well, we know the Lord Jesus in a very same way. He stood up to save us. He stood up off of his throne and came and became one of us and ultimately saved us, Yashe. And how? Well, it says this exact thing in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. It tells us that he delivered us from the domain of darkness. This is God. Delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. There we have the same word, that ruomai. He delivered. He saved. He helped us from the domain of darkness. Where? into the kingdom of his beloved son. So what we have here is just a little microcosm of even our own story. Um, along with that, though, there's um, there's more that I just want to quickly touch on, even if perhaps it seems a little out of order. But I want you to note that um, later this, well, Zipporah, there are seven daughters, Zipporah and her six sisters, but uh, Zipporah is going to become his wife. And as uh, he becomes uh, the husband of Zipporah, I just want to make a mention that here we have a beautiful picture again of the Lord Jesus Christ. And how so? Well, first, the story takes us back to thinking about Jacob, because with the story of Jacob, he also fled his home because of somebody in his household that was trying to kill him. In that case, it was his brother. Here, it's Pharaoh. Jacob also uh, came to a well, and also at that well, he encountered a woman named Rachel. And of course, that later becomes his wife. And then he's welcomed into his father-in-law's household, where he will stay for quite a time before finally leaving to fulfill what God had called him to do. You see that all of those statements really fit directly into Moses' story as well. But more than just that, when he sits down at a well, we see in Jacob's story that Rachel comes and that there is this uh, relationship which uh, occurs, a, a relationship of marriage. That's not the first time we've seen that either, right? If you went back to Genesis 24, you would see Abraham's servant goes, he goes to a well, and what's he going there for? To find a wife for his master, Abraham's son, Isaac. Well, he goes to the well, and of course there he finds a bride for Isaac. We see the same thing with Jacob's story. Now we see it again with Moses. He comes to a well. At the well, he finds Zipporah, who becomes his wife. Is it any wonder that in John chapter 4, the Lord Jesus also comes and sits down by a well? And there at the well, he waits, and he waits for the woman who comes. And this woman with a, a background that, that most would not say was respectful, what the Lord shows is, I've come for the broken, the hurting of this world. And we could say very truly that woman did become his bride because in a spiritual way, part of the bride of Christ, one who said this is the savior of the world. So just recognize that there's so much happening behind the scenes when Moses comes and sits down at a well. Um, as we continue, though, to, to think through this, uh, it's interesting that after he saves these women, they come home to their father, Ruel, who we'll talk about in a few minutes. And he says, how is it that you have come home so soon today? Um, then, then they go on to explain that an Egyptian 
delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered their flock. Just a couple little notes on this. I think it's interesting they call him an Egyptian because remember um, back in uh, earlier in the chapter that when he was in the ark in the, um, in, in the basket, uh, when the Pharaoh's daughter found him, what did she say? She said, this is a Hebrew child. So he was identified as a Hebrew. Now he's being identified as an Egyptian. He must have sounded or looked or something identified him as an Egyptian more so than a Hebrew. But also the irony is beautiful, right? That an Egyptian will become a shepherd so that a shepherd might deliver his people from Egypt. And so right now we have this Egyptian shepherd, but the Egyptian's going to be, or an Egyptian, I should say, but the Egyptian's going to become a shepherd who will one day shepherd his people out of Egypt. And so again, the pictures are just so clear in this story. But as we go on, um, we see for where, where he, we saw where he sat, we see for what he stood. Um, but then we're going to see this really important aspect of where he stayed. And it might not seem like an important one at the onset, but I think by the time we finish in just a few minutes, you're going to be excited about where God had him stay for quite a lengthy period of time, apparently 40 years, if you do the math of uh, Stephen's sermon um, in Acts 7. So where he stayed? Well, after the girls deliver this message to their dad, their dad has this funny response uh, then where is he? Like, why did you leave him at the well? Why have you left the man? It's also interesting that he says, how is it that you've come home so soon today in verse 18? That almost indicates to me that there was a, a tendency, a, a commonality to the girls um, having problems at the well. Um, perhaps, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what the, the reason. Maybe it's a dangerous area. Maybe it wasn't typical for um, girls in that place to go to the well, although much of the world, it's the norm for girls to go to the well. I don't know. Maybe it's because they were far away from others, so it was a place oftentimes of manipulation and even um, abuse. But whatever the case is, he was surprised they came home early. Um, but where he stayed. Uh, so, so, they went, they called him to eat bread. And of course, what happens? Uh, Ruel gives Moses his daughter, Zipporah. And so we're going to see him become part of the family. Uh, now, Zipporah, her name uh, means sparrow or bird. And uh, I, I don't know if we really should read too much into it. There are some commentators that say, oh, that means she was a small, nervous person. And, and I say, I, I'm not sure we can really draw that conclusion. In fact, I think it's sometimes dangerous to just jump to those kinds of things. Uh, so if if you're one of the ones that say, you know, that is, that is what it indicates. Well, please feel free to share in the comments or write us a message because I would love to learn biblically why you hold that perspective. But of course, if that's just speculation, we're not here to speculate. There's enough speculation in this world. But Moses stayed. Where did he stay? Well, yeah, he stays at the the home of his wife and father-in-law. But let's talk a little bit about this father-in-law. The first introduction to him we see in verse 16. It says, the priest of Midian had seven daughters. So we know he's the priest of Midian. But then we also see another detail, which I believe is important. Uh, it says his name in verse 18, their father, Ruel. Now, that's really the identification features we see in chapter 2. But when you get to chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. 
Now, there it might seem like we have a seeming contradiction going on. And I'm just going to briefly touch on this. Many others have done uh, much more um, describing and diving into the, the details of why what I'm saying. But I'll just keep it at this. Uh, it would seem that Ruel is his actual given name. Ruel means friend of God. Some have said shepherd of God. But friend of God is the more typical um, meaning of the name. And then Jethro means his abundance. But I would strongly suggest that Ruel is his proper name, but Jethro is more so a title, almost like Pharaoh was also a title. And so we don't really run into many problems with the whole Ruel and Jethro deal. But later on, when you get to Numbers 10, verse 29, we read, And Moses said to Hobab, the son of Ruel, okay, we're good right now, the Midianite, his father-in-law. Okay, so... Hobab is apparently a brother. Zipporah had a brother named Hobab, or unless it was like married into the family. But the point being is that that doesn't cause confusion until we get to Judges 4.11. And it says, Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses. Whoa. Back in Numbers 10, we found out that Hobab was a brother-in-law of Moses, a, a son-in-law of Ruel. But now, why is he called the father-in-law of Moses? Well, you've got to remember that in Hebrew, um, when it was written at this time, vowels were not used. So it was a consonant language. So you have to understand that when consonants appear, it could be multiple words. And based on context, that word is chosen. And what's interesting is father-in-law and brother-in-law have the same consonant. So I'm not sure why father-in-law is a translation in Judges chapter 4 when coming to English, but um, it certainly isn't confusing that it would seem from Numbers 10 that Hobab is clearly the brother-in-law. Um, if you're confused by that, just as an example, take a word in English like, okay, well, take the, the consonants F-L-D, F-L-D. Well, once I start adding vowels, F-L-D could be field, it could be filed, it could be foiled, fled, flood. You get the idea. So again, this, uh, this variance doesn't have to be a confusing thing. So we see here is where Moses chooses to stay. Now, as he stays there, he has a son. His son's name is Gershom, and we meet Gershom in verse 22. Gershom, uh, it's interesting that he names him this because it, it means... Um, well, he says, because a stranger have I been. And that word literally means a stranger. So it, it would suggest that Moses knew that he was in a place that was not his own. He was in a foreign land, almost with the indication that this is not his permanent place. And I love that because I think that what he's really doing here is he's he's identifying that he's not, he's content. It says in verse 22 that he was content or actually verse 21, to dwell with the man. But it doesn't mean he was content with where he was at in life. In other words, he kept pushing forward. Did Moses learn from his mistakes? It's a great question. I think there's three things that, um, that, that would point us to the fact that he was in the process of learning, that God was in the process of teaching him. Three things that God seemed to teach him. One was his role in life. Second was his room of learning. And finally, his reliance on the Lord. His 
role in life was here was a place where he could develop a servant's attitude. He had already been a student in Pharaoh's court, but now it was time to be a servant in God's university of the wilderness and a servant's attitude. And he's going to take those steps to being a servant, to be humbled. His room of learning, well, what was it? And we're going to learn more about this in days to come, but it was the wilderness. It was, uh, I could say no man's land. That's probably not exactly fair, but the point is it was really in the middle of nowhere in the perception of many. It was an obscure place dwelling in a barren desert, away from the limelight. And this is often where God molds and prepares his people. In fact, you'll notice many of the, the individuals that God uses throughout Scripture had their time in the wilderness. It says in 2 Samuel 7, 8 that, God, uh, that, that David was taken from the sheepfolds, from following the sheep, to rule over God's people, over Israel. Um, it's interesting, too, that here's his room of learning, the desert. The very same desert we're going to find out in the next chapter is where God brings back the children of Israel. He probably was familiar with even the, the mountains, the rocks, the, the configuration of the desert, the way to stay cool, the way to um, provide for basic needs. It was his room of learning. God did not waste his experience. And then we see his reliance on the Lord. Moses learned the ability to rest and rest rely on God, even when God's timing and God's methods were drastically different than those of Moses. This was his classroom. I remember years ago when I was um, speaking, I think I was 20 years old, and I had just finished a, a message, and at the closing prayer, I was up there kind of gathering my Bible and notes, and this man, about 70-something years old, comes walking up the aisle straight to me, and I, and I knew he was coming for me, and so I just stood there, and he comes, and he throws his arms around me, throws his head into my chest, and starts literally wailing very loud, I've wasted my life, I've wasted my life, I've wasted my life, and I, I remember thinking, wow, this is, I don't know what to say, this is intense. And then I, I realized years later, that wasn't true. He hadn't wasted his life. Perhaps there was waste in his life, but I want to tell you something about our God. In God's economy, disobedience in our past doesn't equate to uselessness in our future. God doesn't merely forgive our past. He redeems it. Do I need to say it again? Disobedience in our past does not equate to uselessness in the future. God doesn't merely forgive our past. He redeems it. You might be saying today, this is a waste. My life is a waste. I've wasted my life. But I'm telling you today, there's a God who finds you sitting by a well where the world says it's wasted, where the world says you're a failure. And God says, no, no, no. You might be a failing fugitive, but you're not a forgotten failure. See, keep this in mind, that daily obedience prepares us for divine opportunities. Noah obediently constructed a boat on dry land before cruising a flooded earth. Abraham was found faithfully pitching his tent before parenting a nation. Joseph was humbly counseling prisoners before consulting a potentate. David wrote choruses before he wore crowns. Elisha plowed fields before receiving his promotion to be a prophet. Daniel resisted compromise before receiving commendation from kings. And Moses, well, he was found shepherding sheep prior to standing before Pharaoh and later shepherding souls. See, God doesn't look at the size of your audience. He doesn't look on the magnitude of your mission, but on your faithfulness to his voice and his guidance. 
Perhaps we should embrace the words of John Wesley, who prayed and is recorded in the Methodist service book, I am no longer my own but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to your doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you, exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. Oh, may that be our heart. We're out of time. Please check out www.intoyourbible.org for more, for show notes, for free resources to download, or check out our YouTube page for many more videos. But until next time, remember this is Into Your Bible, and our prayer is that you would be one who loves the Word of God and the God of the Word. Thanks for listening to Into Your Bible, the podcast, an extension of the ministry of Rock International. This is a place where we dive into the Holy Bible, seeking a generation who loves the Word of God and the God of the Word. Wherever you listen, subscribe to not miss an episode. And if you want to take things a step further, leave a review so others can find it too. For free resources, show notes, and more, check out our website at www.intoyourbible.org. Until next time, keep diving in.